Blog Talk Radio. sure the topic is so tough today, but it, I think very interesting and applicable um, to us in this uh, this day and age um, from a couple of standpoints. One is, you know, we have to uh, look at things as parents and if we have children or as responsible adults, um, if we are dealing with other people's children. And we also have to look at things from, a, you know, what's really happening from a factual standpoint. And this topic is one that seems to have some mixed facts and mixed uh, practical approaches. The topic that I'm talking about is single gender or single sex education. Now, my guests today have some uh, vast experience in this. Uh, Dr. Janet Hyde, welcome, Janet. Thank you. Now, she's done some research in this area and uh, some extensive research, and we're going to be talking a little bit about that and what she's learned from that. But we also have um, Bill. Are you with us? Nice to be here. Bill Ivey, who is dean of the middle school at Stonely Burnham School in Massachusetts, and he has some practical experience from heading up an all-girls school. I also have some practical experience as the parent of a girl who went to an all-girls school, and so we're going to have just a kind of a general general conversation about what is single-gender uh, education, how did it get started, why do we think it's good or not good, and are those opinions changing, and how does it apply to different socioeconomic strata in our culture? Janet, why don't we get started with you? How did, you know, I mean, I remember even as a child, it was kind of like a gold standard if you could be a girl and go to an all-girls school. Now, the girls thought it was horrible, but the parents thought it was great. How did these notions get started that it was a good thing to split up genders? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. Of course, I grew up in the Midwest, and we don't have these things about uh, about private prep schools, much less single-sex schools so much here. I think that's more of an East Coast thing. But but um, much of this actually originated in the 1800s when girls' schools and boys' schools were formed. And uh, at the time, you know, that was the Victorian era, and there was all kinds of horror about males and females walking down the street together. Uh, and so uh, many of these schools actually were not um, were not formed based on any kind of idealistic standards about a better way to educate. They were based on the notion that boys and girls oughtn't to be spending time together, that it was a dangerous situation. So much of what we have today is actually a legacy of that uh, history. Well, wasn't it, didn't girls get taught different things? I mean, very rarely during those 1800s did girls get you know, what we call today the STEM classes, they were sent to school to learn how to keep house and to do their needlework, weren't they? Well, I think that's a lot of it, although I have to say I'm not, I'm a psychology professor and not a historian, so I, okay. I don't know the details of um, single-sex schooling in the 1800s except that, uh, you know, it was prevalent and for certainly not for educational uh, idealistic reasons. Okay, all right. Bill, the history of your school is uh, is uh, somewhat extensive. What do you know about how single-sex, single-gendered education start? I, I feel funny calling it single-sex education, um, but that's what people call it, don't they? They often do, but I, I agree with you. I feel so much more comfortable with single-gender than single-sex as a term, but a lot of people do use them um, interchangeably. So. Yeah. I think I'm I think I, I must that. be dirty minded. I think of sex as an activity. I think of gender as a state of being. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, my school's history is goes back to the 1800s, um, but it started maybe a little bit more on a social justice track than the average school at the time, because of our three ancestor schools. Um, the oldest, which was in Greenfield, Massachusetts, where we currently are, was formed by uh, it was was formed by a group of men, but they were um, abolitionists. Um, but 
in, in their history. And they saw this as sort of an extension of, um, of the notion of civil rights for all people, the founding of a girl's school in Greenfield. And then about eight years after that, down in um, Northampton, Massachusetts, um, the president of Smith College spoke to um, a couple of women, Mary Burnham and Bessie Capon, and said that he wanted um, a high school for girls that would prepare them um, well for women's colleges and on to life after that. Um, and Bessie Capon, um, one of our alumni directors, did some research into her and found out she actually um, was the first female professor at MIT teaching in chemistry. So there's kind of a feminist streak on that side. And then the president of Smith, a few years after that, um, by now we're 1909, um, asked another couple of women to form a school, and they founded it in Indiana. And then there have been a whole series of mergers that have resulted in Stoneley Burnham um, in its current form being formed in 1968 and on a farm in Greenfield, Massachusetts. Okay, so I do think that Bill raises like, a good point there too, uh, which is if we think, for example, about the Seven Sisters Women's Colleges, like Wellesley and Smith, one of the reasons they were founded was because Harvard, Princeton, and Yale wouldn't admit women. So people idealistically founded these colleges for women, but it was mainly because um, the prestigious private schools like Harvard, Princeton, and Yale would not admit women, and in fact. They didn't admit women until the 1970s. Yeah, yeah I, I can remember that. I can remember when the, the brouhaha, when they first started accepting women. Yeah, it was like, that's right. That's it was right. the ruination. It was the ruination of a culture, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So, um, okay, so just to kind of wrap it up here, it sounds to me like we just started it for a couple of reasons. One is that possibly women's education was perceived as being something totally different from men's education. Women's education really wasn't available, and so women had to start, you know, go. they had to start some specialized schools for women to go to since they weren't welcome in the traditional schools or the well-established schools, and also because of the Victorian fear of, you know, the distraction of the opposite sex. But it seems to me in my little limited research that I did in preparation for the show that some of that kind of stuck into the 80s and the 90s. Um, I think there was some research that came out in the 90s that really, and and in the 80s, that really supported the idea that boys and girls are going to do better if they have separate schools. And am I right on that, Janet? Are you aware of that research? Well, I don't think of the 80s and 90s as being a tipping point. Historically, the real tipping point, and and I'm more focused on public education and less on private. The, you know, the private schools and the Catholic schools and so on can do what they, what they want. Whether it's advisable to have single-sex schools is a question. But, but my uh, focus is on public schools. And there was a there was a turning point in 2006 because um, from the beginning of the Title IX um, legislation in the 1970s, sex discrimination in education became illegal uh, in all public education. And, uh, and that was interpreted to mean to include single-sex schooling, which in any single-sex school in, in some sense discriminates against members of the other sex because it won't admit them. So single-sex schooling was outlawed beginning in the 70s in public schools. And then in 2006, during the administration of George W. Bush, they issued an executive order saying that public schools could, quote, experiment with single-sex schooling, but that it had to be done for some substantial government uh, benefit or substantially related to some educational goal so it had to be effective and so 2006 is what unleashed um, the gates of of the experimentation with single-sex schooling in the public schools okay um okay all right um i i recall that time though and i remember and and, and i'm flipping through my stuff here there was a study in 93 um by sadker and sadker 
then that was one of the studies that showed that um, boys were, uh, in public school, that boys were called on more frequently and the responses from teachers were that the, the boys' value, comments were more valued and boys were encouraged to solve problems, but girls were just helped with the answer, you know, given the answers and helped and all that kind of stuff. And I remember raising children at that point going, oh, oh, well, I don't want my son and my daughter to be treated differently like that. And... That, right. The so that did have, yeah, they did do so much publicized research. We don't quite get the same effects today. We get get a little bit of it, but of course, the remedy for that is not necessarily segregating boys and girls into different classrooms or different schools. Uh, it might be. It might involve instead training teachers to be sensitive to those issues. And in fact, there are quite a few training programs and some of my colleagues here at University of Wisconsin and the College of Education have done some of that working with teachers to make them aware if they're calling on boys more frequently than girls. Yet at the same time, I think we've more realized the complexity of those findings because teachers will tell you that they call on boys more frequently, partly for crowd control. That is, boys may be squirming in their seats or something, and they call on boys to get them to focus on the lesson. It's actually not at all clear that calling on boys gives them a better education in that context. It may be the girls who are working quietly and not fidgeting who are actually getting a better education. So some of what the Sadkers said at the time seemed to be an indictment, um, but, but, you know, it's 20 years later, and, and we have a little more complex view of what's going on now, and also different remedies such as training teachers um, not to engage in some of these behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, what you're seeing in, in your studies, and you've done several studies um, that that uh, explore this issue, you're finding that you know all of those early ideas don't necessarily hold water as far as a reason for providing single-gender education. Bill, in your experience, are you seeing what? Why do you support single gender education? Why do? You, why, in your experience, is it a good thing? Um, I would say it's a good thing. I I look at what kids who come to my school tell me about their experiences before the school, um, and you know, I love I love what Janet's saying about training training for teachers because it feels like there's a lot of training still needed. And I remember, I remember a couple years back, um, the seventh graders held a joint discussion with the sophomores because we were both doing units, um, one self-designed by the seventh graders and one sort of designed in collaboration between the sophomores and their teacher on feminism. And several of the kids were saying that before they came here, their coaches were saying, well, you know, you're getting to middle school, um, time for you to drop sports and focus on other things. Um, and they were, they were, they were feeling that, um, you know, those, those teachers, as I say, clearly needed training because they were focusing much more on the boys in the school. So I feel my kids are reporting that same kind of thing. And then I think, um, I mean, I know Simmons has done some great studies with um, girl-focused organizations and how those can help support girls in public school environments. And our kids will talk a lot about how sexism and feminism and those kinds of issues are so much easier to talk about in our school than elsewhere and sort of give them, give them a space where they can explore those um, sort of uninhibited. And I feel like that's one of the advantages, too. Well, and that has, that has come up in the research that girls feel more free or at least in some of the research that I saw, that girls have that sense of uh, being free and unencumbered from, I don't know whether it's social expectations or, you know, the what, whatever it is, but that they feel freer in a single-gender environment. When I was, and Janet, you, you, can, you can laugh at my ignorance here, um, but when I was raising children in the 90s, I had a son and a daughter, and... I wanted my I, the the research that I read at the time, although I wasn't able to you know find that at this point, indicated that the study showed that girls did better in a single gender environment, but boys did not. <laughs> so 
but which brings up an interesting question of if that indeed held water, um, who who are we going to sac? What girls are we going to sacrifice so the boys don't have the single gender education? You know, um, of course I'm you know making it I'm I'm that's you know a tongue in cheek comment, but. Your studies, Janet, didn't find anything to support that, that girls did better or boys did better or boys did worse or anything like that, right? Right, yeah. And one of the things I should maybe make clear to to listeners, um, I'm a scientist, and uh, it's so important that we make educational policy decisions based on the best available science. There's a difference between anecdotes and science, so people can talk about anecdotes about how much girls love their single-sex schools. I can tell you that I went to a single-sex um, junior high and high school, and I went to Oberlin College, which was the first co-educational college in the United States, co-educational in 1837, uh, when certainly Harvard, Princeton, and Yale were not admitting women. And I treasured those experiences. People always talk about treasuring their girls' school experience. Well, I treasured those school experiences, but those are all anecdotes. And we really can't infer from any, it's not any kind of systematic scientific evidence. We don't know about the negative cases. And in fact, I had, if we're going to tell anecdotes for a moment, I had uh, a middle-aged man who audited my psychology of women class a couple of years ago, whose fa- uh, father was a principal at a single-sex school in the Northeast, and so he had, had to go to that same school. And he he was tormented by it. He said it was horrible. So um, for for every anecdote we can have about how lovely single-sex schools are, we can have other anecdotes about how lovely co-ed schools are or how, how miserable single-sex schools are. So the way we settle all of this is that we do systematic scientific research. And what I did for my – I've done a couple studies, but the major one, um, I used a, a technique that's called meta-analysis to put together all the previous scientific studies comparing single-sex and co-educational schooling for K-12. through I didn't do colleges. but um, And some readers may have heard the term meta-analysis before and others not. It's just a statistical technique for combining all the data from all these studies. So, for example, in this meta-analysis, we were able to find 184 relevant studies across 21 nations um, that represent the testing of 1.6 million students. So you can see that this goes far beyond individual anecdotes. Um, and what we found in that, and I can get into more details if you want, but the, the, but the big picture is we looked at a whole bunch of outcomes like math performance and math attitudes and school attitudes and gender stereotyping and so on. And there wasn't an advantage for uh, single-sex schooling for any one of those outcome variables. It was just pretty much a tie for co-ed versus single-sex throughout. Um, so so no no clear advantages for single-sex schooling on any of those outcomes. Mm-hmm. I had a question, though. Um, you know, there's so much emphasis right now on the STEM programs for girls, you know, the science, technology, engineering, and math. And those programs are definitely directed toward girls. Well, so right. And actually, of, I, I mean, how I, does that well, go ahead. Go compare? Ahead. You know, what does how does how does that what does that mean? Help explain why that is okay or useful, but not necessarily a whole classroom for all subjects. I mean, help me understand that if you can. Right. Well, people are concerned about the gender gap in STEM in the United States, um, and actually, and this is actually one of my areas of research too. Um, and that gap is actually not true in all of the sciences. Uh, in bi- biology has become quite gender equitable. Psychology has, even even if you look at the PhD level, uh, about 50% of the PhDs in biology today go to women. So um, we get the big gender gaps in physics and engineering and computer science. And uh, at the college level, those gaps have just been level for more than a decade. That is, the percentage of women getting um, undergraduate degrees in those areas just hangs around 18 to 20 percent. So people are are concerned about closing this gender gap in STEM um, for a number of reasons. One is that those jobs are plentiful and lucrative, so it's a good way for women to have employment in adulthood. And then there's also a national objective 
really the only way the U.S. can compete in the global economic competition is through our scientific and technological innovations. That's what we're good at. It's what's going to save us. We're not a manufacturing culture anymore. So if you want to have a great scientific and technology nation, you want to use all the talents that are there. And that means that you don't want to waste the talents of 50% of the population, namely all the women. So there's been an emphasis on getting more women involved uh, in STEM. And um, it's a very complicated story about the factors that contribute to gender gaps uh, in STEM. I actually have written, you know, whole papers on that, um, which we probably don't have time to get into. But but back to more directly to your question, that was sort of a background for why the issue is there. So people hope to do various things that will um, encourage more girls to get into STEM fields. Some of them are summer camps, uh, you know, after-school programs. Um, Many of those are not evaluated, so we actually don't know scientifically how effective they are. They're well-intentioned. People want to do something, but they don't always think to evaluate it um, well. So I, I think that we don't know whether those programs are actually effective or not. I guess what I'm saying is is that when we're targeting uh, a, a, a gender because they're not well represented in a field, um, I guess why aren't they well represented? Um, is it just social conditioning? Is it just you know um, because they're not encouraged? And how would a, how does a, a single gender program? of encouragement differ from a single-gender classroom, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, well, I I mean, I'm not so sure that it works at all, but, you know, I really could list ten different reasons why women are underrepresented in some of these fields. One is that they don't see women role models in those fields, and so one of the hopes is if you show them more role models, that'll help. But then there was one study that showed if you um, if you give them role models who are, I don't want to say unattractive, but who are not cool, you know, then it's actually worse than having no role models at all. So what you have to do is show them cool women who are in STEM fields. Um, so so it's, it's complicated to get the formula right. Uh, they don't see women in those fields in adulthood, so they think, well, maybe I don't belong there. So there's a lot that needs to be done. Some people say it's because girls can't do the math, Um I've done a lot of research on that, and actually today girls are scoring as well as boys uh, in standardized math tests all the way through 12th grade. So math is not the problem. Girls can do math, uh, but there are other kinds of problems that are discouraging them from these STEM occupations. Okay, but Um, I guess what I'm saying is is that, we okay, we as a society are saying, well, we need to encourage more girls in STEM, so we'll have programs just for girls in STEM, okay? And that, I right. mean, I'm and not I'm objecting saying, to I'm that. I'm just saying are effective how... any more than I'm convinced that single-sex schooling is effective. Okay, so you're saying that that's not necessarily... Okay, all right, so just because everybody's mm-hmm. doing it doesn't necessarily mean it's the best doesn't approach. doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea. Yeah, and it's, okay. there's an absence right. of good evaluation of the effectiveness of those programs. Yeah, Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Um, Bill, I've kind of been ignoring you here while I've been trying to figure out, you know, uh, (laughs) how to answer my question here. Um, But do Mm -hmm. you see, you know, and again, I I understand, Janet, that Bill's experience, he's not supporting it with with numerous studies, but nevertheless, he has extensive uh, experience. And just because anecdotal experience isn't necessarily, you know, proved or disproven um, doesn't mean that it's not legitimate or accurate or whatever. It just means that it's not substantiated by science. But, Bill, what is your experience when it comes to that, that whole STEM thing for girls? Is it, is it helpful uh, in your experience to have the single gender when it comes to something like a STEM program? Um, well, one, one, study and, um, one study that actually was in Janet's meta-analysis and because um, I remember when that first came out, people pointed me to it, and you can imagine that I was nervous to go to it. But um, <laughs> I thought it was um, I thought it was really informative and helpful reading. And one thing I realized, because I refer frequently to the 2009 Linda Sachs report from UCLA, um, mm. 
and I and and my my memory and obviously Janet, if I'm wrong, please tell me. But my memory is that it wasn't so much that those findings were necessarily wrong, but that they were at this point in time unsubstantiated and not reconfirmed and backed up. And I know that among the findings she had was that women who come through girls' schools and women's colleges um, are more likely to go into engineering, are more likely to have um, stronger self-esteem in the areas of math and science, and that it's more, in my mind, it's more that we're looking for confirmation. And I know, and I know again, we're more in the realm of experience and anecdote than proven research, and I know that proven research can really help us with this. But I also anecdotally understand that the Girls Who Code program and the Black Girls Code programs, and the latter is um, particularly rooted in the social justice viewpoint, not purely coding, but coding for a political purpose. Um, my understanding is those have both been um, enjoyed and effective with the girls that have gone through them. Janet, are you familiar with that? Uh, no, I don't know those two those two particular um, programs. I, I should explain also one other thing about some of the studies, and, and I'm, I reviewed an awful lot of studies, so I'm not going to give a, a detailed co- comment about Linda Sachs's particular study. One of the problems with some of the studies that have looked at single-sex schooling, and then compa- you have to have a comparison group, so the comparison group is some co-ed school. Some of those have taken... Um, elite, well-funded single-sex schools, whether they're public or private, and then compared them to some random co-ed public school. So often the single-sex school, the kids in it are more advantaged and the school is more advantaged. So if somebody says, well, look, from this single-sex or this cluster of single-sex schools, more girls go on to STEM careers, I'm going to ask about the backgrounds of those the girls and their families because typically the kids who go to single-sex schools have parents have more education and so on. So the kids are advantaged to begin with, and the parents are paying attention and trying to get them into the best school. And then the school has certain advantages because a lot of resources have gone into it. So when we so when we say that girls from this kind of situation go on to STEM more, it may have nothing to do with the single-sex school configuration and everything to do with the other advantages of that school or the advantages of the families that they grew up in. Well, the other factor mm-hmm. that I was thinking of, too, is that, you know, and again, being the parent of a girl who went to a, a single-gender school, um, if she was, if she had been mediocre in her study, she would not have been accepted to that school. Exactly. So That's the point. It's a selective it, group. It, yeah. Yeah. So it seems to me that when you have these um, private schools, um, that you are getting the best and the brightest to start with. Um, so really, the only way to compare it, I would think, would be to take the best and the brightest from the public schools and 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 do that compare. You know, apples and apples. Um, it would seem to me if you're going to do a study. The problem, of course, with studies is that, you know, I mean, look at all the studies we've had. We've talked about, you know, the evolution of studies over the last 20 years just in our own conversa- our little conversation here. And it seems like no matter what study you have, I can show you another study that contradicts it, or I can show you, you know, just wait 10 years, and then you'll get more studies that contradict that. Um, and I love studies. Don't get me wrong. I do love studies, um, and, and I do uh, believe in them. But... I, they they are you know uh, 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 just a little piece of the view from the window, not the entire view, and and we do tend to have changes you know as we you know hone studies or whatever. Um, so you know they do seem to be fluid. So it it you know it's not something where you can say well this study proved in you know proved anything you know and it, it doesn't. I mean you know but well, but it is pre- nevertheless useful to have that information. Well, that's precisely why we do meta-analyses, so that we can put all those studies together and see when you average over all the studies what the overall result is. Because you're right, sometimes studies contradict each other. So we see whether the preponderance of evidence is on one side or the other, and that's the point of the meta-analysis. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, too, is that, you know, in your in your meta-analysis, you said, you know, you did all of this. I mean, what was it, 1.6 million um, students in grades K mm-hmm. through 12. Um, but... 
you know, one of the little statements that caught me there in the abstract for that study is that it showed only trivial differences. Well, if you know, and that great, you know, I mean, if you're looking overall picture, but if you happen to be one of those students that has that trivial difference, it's all the difference in the world. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of like. Um, Oh, somebody once said, if you only have you know one ninety nine point ninety nine percent chance of being you know struck by lightning or whatever, um, if you're the one that's struck by lightning, it may as well be a hundred percent. You know. <laughs> so, well, right, but and one of the problems is some of the single sex school advocates, because um, there are a couple of gurus who run around training people in, in how to do this. Some of them say, well, it doesn't work for everybody. It works for some kids, but there's no scientific evidence of which kids it works for. And and the gurus can't haven't been able to say what that is. So we actually maybe it works for 5 or 10% of the kids. Um I don't know. There's no evidence and and if it is for t- 5 or 10% of the kids, how do we know? Uh you know, so people said, "Oh, well parents will know." Well, it, parents mean the best, but they it, how do they have an intuition? What what they'd like is some scientific information that says this type of kid is going to really thrive in such a school. And we just don't have that a, any knowledge of what that might be. Yeah. Um, um, Bill, in your school, I, I, I mean, I'm assuming that your school is typical of the school my daughter went to, for example, where you are getting the best and the brightest. I mean, you, the diversity doesn't come from intellectual firepower. The diversity comes from socioeconomic background, right, um, and and you know, race, racial, you know, uh, ethnicity and that kind of thing. But really there's no diversity when it comes to uh, capabilities. Am I wrong um, or am I making... I would, I, would, I would say yes and no. Um, over the 30-odd years I've been at the school, I do think the um, slice, of, slice of the population we draw from, and admittedly we're not drawing from 100% of the population, um, even given that we're a girls' school. Um, I think that has shifted. Um, I think I think we get kids for a small school. We're only 154 students. I think we get kids that range from sort of around average to above average to um, well above average in terms of however you would want to want to rank that. And beyond that, yeah, we have a lot more socioeconomic. Um, and racial, and for that matter, nationality diversity, because we're a boarding school. Okay. Okay. One of the reasons um, that um, there is support of single gender, and I might also throw in here that back in the same time when there, what, and you're not necessarily agreeing with me on, on this, Janet, but I guess because I was doing research, you know, when I was raising my kids in the 90s, it seems to me that there was a big upsurge of, yeah, you, you know, girls will do better in an all-girls school, you know, kind of research that was coming to the fore, you know, during the 90s. Um, when I was paying particular attention to it. Um, But at the same time, it wasn't just gender. We were also uh, experimenting with ideas of single-race school or um, single-skill schools. In other words, just kind of honing down the population for a particular educational environment. Um, And I know you focus on gender, but in your studies, do you see any benefit at all to that kind of honing down and winnowing out to a single interest or a single skill or a single gender or a single uh, race or anything? Any Has anything like that ever been in your meta-analysis proven or, or indicative, indicative of any kind of benefit to the student? Well, it, that kind of narrowing of the population for a school is exactly the, the direction we don't want to take in education because kids benefit from interacting with a diverse pool of classmates. The world, and, and one of the things we try to do in school is to prepare kids for adult life. Adult life is co-ed, uh, unless you're a monk or something. Adult life is co-ed, and so it's better to prepare kids. And the same thing for race, racial diversity. We don't want to narrow, and it would be illegal too, but we don't want to narrow um, a, a classroom or a school to a single race because all kids benefit from interacting with more diverse classmates. They need to learn how to get along well with those kids. They need to be well supervised in doing that. Sometimes they aren't well supervised, and so we get some incidents. But that's not that's not because the diverse classroom is a bad thing. It's because 
school administrators and teachers need to learn how to handle it. And I think, you know, schools are making big strides in that um, these days. So everybody benefits from diversity, and we we have tons of studies in social psychology and educational psychology showing that more diverse student bodies are beneficial to students. Mm-hmm. And, Bill, is that your experience? And, and how do you provide that diversity uh, for your students? Well, I, w- I would say, first of all, um, what's going on within the classroom and what's going on in the rest of their lives are, of course, two different things, and the rest of their lives are kind of inevitably co-ed. Um, and that's that's true even for the boarders because of the fact that they have um, their lives back at home on vacations, which is about five months of the year, and it's um, and their friends. So, in that sense, I, I view it more as what's going on in the classroom as a place within. And on, honestly, I mean, these days within a range of genders, we're a girls' school, but that doesn't actually mean we only have girls. Um, we graduated a trans boy last year. We have several out non non-binary kids. And I think um, as I look on our history over the last six years, I think we've become a lot more aware of the notion that we're teaching, we're a girls' school, but we're teaching a bunch of individual students who really are completely different one from another, and we need to find out who those kids are and help them. And we do it in a girl-positive feminist atmosphere. But... um, you know, that's something I believe that is easier because we're a girls' school. Why? Why is it easier? I think it's easier. I mean, fu- fundamentally, as a girls' school, what we're doing is we're fighting patriarchy. And I think pretty much by, the, by virtue of the fact that whatever their gender, every single one of our students has been oppressed and marginalized by patriarchy, I think that gives them that point in common. And so first first off, um, those common experiences that they have are something they can build on as they analyze different things in their lives. It can, it can be, I've noticed in some of my own classes, sort of a hook to get at some of the other kinds of prejudice and particularly at systemic racism to some extent at um, classism. And I think that common experience gives us a really solid foundation and base. I think that's that's interesting. You know, one of the things when we started out this conversation, we talked about why why did you know these single gender you know the girl schools uh, start? Because let's face it, there's more girl schools than boys schools. Um, but we didn't cover the idea that I mean, again, um, and this could have been a a particular fashion of study uh, at one point, but there was. A, a lot of emphasis placed 15, 20 years ago on the differences between boys and girls as far as brain functioning. Um, I haven't seen that in a long time, Janet. Has that just completely been dispelled, or do we still talk about the differences in the way the brains work when it comes to learning between the genders? Some some of the single-sex schooling advocates, especially these two gurus who go around training, say that girls and boys brains are are completely different, but none of the current neuroscience research shows that. So that's why you're not hearing it anymore. Uh, And there are actually several really good books out. Uh, There's one by a neuroscientist named Lise Elliott uh, that's called Pink Brain, Blue Brain, and it looks systematically at the neuroscience research. The book is a little old now, but um, there really are not systematic differences uh, between male and female brains, except in a few specific regions like the hypothalamus, which has to do with the menstrual cycle, but that's not, you know, that's not relevant for education. Um, aside from that, uh, m- most brain regions are very mixed and show a lot of overlap between males and females. So it's true, you're right that some of the single-sex schooling advocates have used this notion of male brain and female brain, but that's really not what modern neuroscience is showing. Okay. Um, it seems like there's a difference, though. <laughs> is that all enculturation? Is that all how how we just focus on, you know, it was interesting for me as, as a parent because I had a boy and I had a girl, and I came from to parenthood from a very feminist, anti-patriarchal standpoint. And I had a dear friend who gave me a poem when I was pregnant with my first child, and I can't remember the whole gist of the poem, but 
the 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 last stanza of the poem was, and with the pitter patter of little feet came fifty million words to eat, because. <laughs> I, and I'll never forget that because, of course, all of my notions on, you know, equality between the genders and all of it, it really, I mean, it it was a learning experience. And my friends who only had daughters never got that. Uh, I remember a third grade teacher of my son's who uh, had only daughters, no sons, and the boys would draw battles and draw blood and so she became upset with that and so she confiscated all their red markers well the next thing you know they're drawing aliens that they with green blood you know and i and i just looked at her and i said are you going to confiscate you know these boys have these things that they we can't, we're telling them they can't act it out they can't act on those behaviors and feelings and now we're telling them they can't even draw a picture to you know i mean that just seems so lacking an understanding of this boy mentality, you know, and we can discuss whether it's nature or nurture, it's irrelevant, it's there, you know. Um, and so I, there are differences, and for me, being the mother of a son, it was a big learning experience to see the differences. So when you say there are no differences in right brain, left brain, or, and boy brain, girl brain, da 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 i got to tell you, you know, part of my, my old motherhood stuff was going, really? <laughs> Okay. okay well, let, let, yeah, let me let me just update you a little bit with with what the research shows about gender differences for children. And, and this is an area that I've thought about a lot. Um, there are gender differences in activity level, and there are gender different differences in toy and game preferences. From early on, boys and girls have different preference for different kinds of toys, and boys are somewhat more active and they're somewhat more aggressive. With the toy and game preferences, it's not at all clear if that's meaningful later in life, you know. But but people f- focus on differences and they tend to ignore similarities. So I can I have sure. lots of data showing, despite stereotypes, no gender differences in math performance at any grade level, no gender differences in verbal performance at any grade level. Um, really? Okay. Yes. That's right, and okay. people are astonished by that. But I got data on millions of kids that show this. So, okay. so what happens is, and part, social psychologists study this, has to do with the stereotype confirmation process. So, if you see a girl who's bad at math, you think, oh boy, you know, this is just girls can't do math. And you see a boy who's good at math, and you say, well, yeah, that's right. But if you do systematic scientific research, rather than looking at individual cases and anecdotes, you don't get those gender differences. You do get some in toy and game preferences, some in activity level, and some of what you were talking about was more like that. But it's also true that at, at, at the preschool and elementary school age, the the social organization that kids choose from that for themselves is very gender segregated. That is, boys play with boys and girls play with girls. And they culturally have different kinds of things that they play too. And so there's kind of a boys' culture and a girls' culture, but, we, you know, n- not necessarily at all rooted in, in the brain. But for many, many of the variables that are stereotyped as having gender differences, the differences just aren't there. Right. Okay. Well, right. That's good and then to know. I can, and Go ahead. Yeah, and then if then if I can delve into because I, I I I completely agree with that, um, and that's you know that shift in neuroscience focus over the um, awareness and knowledge over the last fifteen years has been behind some of what my school's done, and then I it takes me back to anecdote, but I think an anecdote with a question behind it, and when when my son was um, three, he was in a progressive nursery school. Um, it, it was a pre-K to grade six school, and he was there all 10 years. And I remember one day the um, teachers were really shamefaced, and they explained to my wife and I at pickup time that they had had to seat the kids boy, girl, boy, girl, which is we kind of looked at them, and they said, we know it's the antithesis of everything we try to do here. Um, but what had happened is that, yeah, they'd segregated into gender groups, And there was one gender group that was running around screaming at the top of their lungs, playing some sort of violent Star Wars game. And there was another another gender group that was sitting at a table drawing and talking to each other. And it was the boys doing the drawing and the talking and the girls doing the running around being violent. And whatever they were doing, um, you know, the school wanted them interacting. And I think about my own school's goal that the kids be their authentic self. I think of myself growing up 
not really relating to masculinity that much, trying to be my authentic self. And, you know, what is it when my school does our job right? What is it that my son's school was doing right that was letting the kids break out of the stereotypes and be who they wanted to be? I feel like that's a real important question here. I, th- I think you're right. I-, I think you're absolutely right on that. Um, so, okay, so we're not seeing these huge differences, either in capabilities or in brain function, but are we still seeing huge differences in oppression um, between the genders? And might that be a reason to justify a same-gender school, Janet? Well, sexism is around, and and it's gotten a little more subtle than it was 30 or 40 years ago, but it's certainly still there uh, at many levels in the schools, whether it's um, sexual harassment of kids by other kids uh, or whether it's um, teachers saying things that they shouldn't say, although statistically by far the most harassment that kids get are from peers, not from teachers. Um, Yeah. So... Uh, yes, sexism is there. So the question is, how do you battle against sexism? Um, my view, and by the way, I, I should talk about a fabulous program that they've developed at Arizona State that I think is a solution to much of this stuff. Um, my solution would be to uh, teach boys and girls how to treat each other better. That is, I don't think the thing to do is to whisk the girls out of that situation and leave the boys perhaps with sexist attitudes. I think they need to be taught to interact well with each other. And that's exactly what they're doing in a program at at Arizona State University. It's called the Stanford Harmony Program. They have a version for preschool, and they've developed a version for fifth graders. And the idea is that kids are purposely meant, set up to work together in boy-girl teams. And they learn to work together and they learn to respect each other. Because if you don't do that, they're going to do this gender segregation in their play and they're, go- and they're going to say the other group has cooties, you know. So what you have to do is give kids purposeful, structured, positive interactions with members of the other gender and you're going to get much better uh, results. And that, to me, is the way to break uh, sexism down is to have boys learn to interact on an equal basis with girls. Well, no doubt. I mean, I have absolutely no doubt that that's true. But i got to tell you, as a parent of a daughter, if my daughter's being, you know, I mean, idealism be damned, I'm going to whip my kid out of that school and put her into a private school or a, a single-gendered school or whatever I think will solve her problem. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, there's a way to look at, we're, we can look at this idealistically, but when we're parents, we just try to do what we can for that particular child at that particular time. Um, or am I just a particularly selfish parent? <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think parents, I, parent, you know, we're the ones that have to save our kids. I, my kids went to West High School here in Madison, Wisconsin. It's a fabulous co-educational public school. And I, I think if you talk to my daughter, she wouldn't say that she experienced a lot of sexism. If there was an incident, she would immediately report it to me, and I would do something about it, right? But it just, sure. that, but that school, you know, is is uh, it's in Madison, Wisconsin, and there's not so much tolerance for sexism uh, around here. Uh, so I, I think it's com- completely possible to have co-ed schools where there is not a culture of sexism. That's what you have to do. Is you have to get rid of the culture of sexism, not get rid of the co-ed structure. Still, why I, do I actually fund. Um, Go just, ahead. Just yeah, I'll I'll talk about that too. But actually, Janet, I agree with you. And um, one of the people I hoped I was going to be able to mention today is Ileana Jimenez, who is um, does the hashtag um, HS feminism, and she works in a co-ed school, um, and does everything she can to make it a feminist school, and is doing some really amazing work. And I think that's. I, I actually think that's a wonderful place to end up. Um, the question is, you know, how best do we end up there? And programs like Arizona State have got to be awesome towards that end. Um, meanwhile, um, kids who come to my school, I think, are coming part, partly because um, some of them are coming from environments where they feel like it's no longer cool to like school and they want to be in a school where it's cool to like school. 
Some of them are coming from environments where they feel like people don't take them seriously as girls and they want to come to a school where they feel they'll be taken seriously as girls. Um, some, some of them are coming to a place um, where they feel like um, people are going to, well, and this is kind of related, but um, where people are going to listen to them and um, give them a voice and give, give them some degree of power. Um, and I can give one example of something we're doing that I think would be absolutely awesome in context at lots, lots of schools. Um, we have a series of committees this year that are um, faculty student committees, and they've been charged with looking at some of the major aspects of the school and making re recommendations. Um, and we're looking at the ninth, for example, the ninth grade student experience. We're looking at assessment. Um, we're looking at schedule and the whole of the student day. Um, and these are groups where the girls um, and the non-binary kids are, um, are truly teaming up with faculty. And it's not, it's not so much that the faculty are studying the problem and coming up with their ideas and doing a cursory run through. The kids have a voice sort of from the ground up in this. And I think that kind of taking them seriously and then sending them out into the world with that experience, having developed some confidence, having developed some skills. Um, I know, well, some, and I'll be honest, some of our graduates have a little bit of trouble adjusting to co-ed world, but far more com common is the experience where they get to college and many, many of them within the first couple of weeks, some professor says, you went to an all-girls school, didn't you? And they're like, yeah, we did. So I think, I think that's, go ahead. I, I, and I think that, you know, my daughter's experience, and as the parent of a daughter, I, and let me preface this by saying I would have lasted at her girls' school about 13 minutes before they would have kicked me out uh, when I was her age. Um, but, but for her, it was a good fit. Um, there were pluses and minuses, and I think that a lot of what she needed could have been accomplished at the public school if it had not been 1,500 students, if it had been a small environment, I think it could have been accomplished if there was a focus on excellence rather than on just maintaining order and um, getting by. And I understand and appreciate that not all schools, public schools, are the same as the public schools that my daughter went to. Um, but I see the issues that the reason that I chose my daughter's all-girls school was not so much because it was all girls, but because it had a feminist perspective. It was focused on excellence, and it was a small, caring environment. Those were the important things to me. The fact that it was all girls was way down on that list. And I'm mm -hmm. not and sure. That, about and that's such that's such an important point because I think you know it's the excellence of the school, not the single sex versus co-ed configuration that's important. Yeah. And I must say, you know, she learned a lot. She did. I, I must say, every girl that came out of that that school has the confidence that's astonishing. But I must say that I also, um, as a teacher and as a writer. Um, I'm not sure confidence is all that we are have it, have cracked it up to be. I mean, it seems to me confidence based on competence is very important. <laughs> but all it's too often I see confidence that. is based on nothing but thin air. <laughs> and, well, and and that I don't think is is necessarily a value in and of itself. But the girls that came out of there, uh, for the most part, went on to have successful lives, however they defined it. Um, not all of them have high-powered careers, but they have successful lives as they define their, their lives. They had tremendous confidence, but more importantly, they came out of there feeling like they could do with their lives as they saw fit to do with their lives. And that was huge. The drawbacks I think that goes were... to... Go ahead, Bill. No, get, talked about the drawbacks, and then I'll follow up. Okay. Um, the drawbacks were that I did see a lot of um, aberrant behavior. I saw a lot of cliques um, under the surface. As Janet, you were mentioning, you know, sexism is still there. It's just like racism. It's it's under the breath, not blatant. Um, and I did see that. Um, I saw a number of um, 
self-harm issues that came out of there, a need for perfection that was not necessarily a realistic or a healthy uh, need. Um, but for the most part, um, I'm happy with her her education. Um, but again, going back to my main goals, I think it had more to do with size and the other issues that I talked about. Okay, Bill, let me have it. Mm, yeah, definitely. no, it's not. It's not at all. Let let you have it. You reminded me of a really important thing when we um, built our middle school in 2004. Um, we we were trying to look to research, and I mentioned in passing academically, we turned to the Association of Middle Level Education and the This We Believe principles, which were hugely helpful. But you mentioned confidence without competence is a dangerous thing, and. Um, we use the work of Joanne Deke, um, who's a psychologist specializing in women and girls. And at the time, and I believe she still, I don't think she's gone off in another direction since then that I've heard. She said the core elements of self-esteem in girls are confidence, competence, and connectedness. Oh. And we, we felt very strongly that we wanted to build a program that built all three of those, understanding, that they, of course, that they interact with each other. And, I, and it makes me think, I'm listening to your dis- description, also reminded me of one of the kids who went to our middle school and then went off um, randomly to the high school where my wife and I both went, um, where she, by the way, had a wonderful experience and emerged confident and competent and connected. And this girl, when she was with us, sort of felt like, what's this big deal about girls' voices? Why would anyone not use their voice? And then as a junior, she got into, um, and this is one of the areas of STEM where girls and women are underrepresented, she was getting into a coding class. And there was only about, I think there was only one other girl in the class who basically just shut her mouth and um, kind of let the boys get all the attention and so on and so forth. And our kid, our kid, this kid, um, was like, no, I think I'm going to assert myself and be right in the mix of things. And she kind of suddenly realized that's what I took away from my two years in a girls' middle school, was the ability to look at myself in relation to these people and assert myself and make sure I'm getting what I need. Great. Janet, what about the issue of confidence? Is there anything that you found that is a benefit to single-gender education that you found in your meta-analysis? Well, as I said, we looked at a lot of outcomes, including self-esteem, and we just didn't find, we didn't find uh, advantages in in that area. You know, when you look at the best the best conducted studies and you average over them, um, I don't doubt that if there's a, an emphasis on competence and so on in the school that you can achieve that. I just doubt whether it has to be just in a single-sex configuration. I think if you had a, a school that was structured in every other way, the same as that that school, but had boys in it, I think you could get as good a result. Well, and you know what? I, I agree with you, Janet. I really do. And for me, it came down to size and focus. And, and I, you know, I, I'm getting a little long in the tooth now, and I must say the older I get, the more I think, you know, the economy of, of scale is not necessarily a good thing. I, smaller often in many aspects of our lives I think is more beneficial to us, and I see that with my children. Any comments, uh, any quick comments on that, well, Janet? <laughs> I mean, Am I just turning into an old gov- curmudgeon? <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely right. Government funding for education is a problem right now. Federal funding has been reduced. State funding has been reduced. Many municipalities can't afford to do anything except cram a lot of kids into a, into a school. And then we have this further thing of charter schools, which are siphoning money off from the public schools. So um, I'm a firm believer in public schools. They are at the heart of American democracy. And I think we have to reverse some of these trends that are dragging them down and, you know, including huge schools and huge class sizes. So I agree completely, and and, um, we've got to fight the trends that are taking money and attention and resources away from public schools. I think we're all three on the same page with that. Do you Um, agree with that, Bill? 
I, I, I completely agree with that, and I really think it Good. boils then down I'm to different... I'm going to have to cut you off. I'm sorry. Okay. We're coming to the end. The clock is running. I close the show with a, a quote, and I'm going to make it a quick one. I was not ladylike, nor was I manly. I was something else altogether. There were so many different ways to be beautiful, and I think there are so many different ways to educate successfully. Thank you, Janet Hyde. Thank you very much, Bill Ivey. Thank you for joining us on our show to discuss single gender. Join us next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.